Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's great to be with you all here again at the Rota. What a joy it is to sing and to pray and to read and to learn God's Word together. If you're new to us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We encourage you to stop by the visitor's table, the connections table on your way out, and to fill out one of the visitor cards. We would love to be in touch with you. Specifically, you're going to want to know where we're meeting in the future. If you're visiting us, we're a church on the move, literally. For the next two weeks, you'll see on the slide here, we'll be meeting at the Hyatt Regency Creek Heights in Healthcare City at 9 and 11 a.m., So you want to make a note of that, Hyatt, Regency Creek Heights, not to be mistaken with Jumeirah Creekside. It's a little confusing. That's where we were last week. We're thankful we have permissions in hand and we're all set for these next couple of weeks. But let's, let's just be sure that we all know the upcoming schedule. Let me make sure you've all had coffee this morning and that you're awake. So here's a quiz. Okay, yes or no questions. And we love congregational participation here at Redeemer. So we want you to shout out the answer, yes or no, out loud. Okay, that's allowed. So here are the questions. If you show up here at the Rhoda next week, will anyone be here? No. Well, some hotel people will be here, employees and, right, and people staying here. But we will not be here. We will not be singing here. I will not be preaching here. If you come here, you will not see me standing up here. Okay, here's question number two. You're doing well so far. Will we meet at Creekside Hotel next week? No, that was a good one. That was a little tricky, wasn't it? (laughs) Right? I didn't even say Jumeirah Creekside. I just said Creekside, and you guys were with me. You got it. We are not meeting at Jumeirah Creekside Hotel next week. We're not meeting in the evening next week. Here's question number three. For the next two weeks, will we meet at the Hyatt Regency Creek Heights in Healthcare City at 9 and 11 a.m.? Yes, good. Okay, we got it. Now, be sure you go to the correct Hyatt Hotel. There are lots of them, and how sad would it be for you to go to a Hyatt Hotel and be all by yourself next Friday? Lots of Hyatts. This is the tall Hyatt in Healthcare City. It's right next door to a short Hyatt. There's also other Hyatts I'm not even going to name. I don't want to confuse you, but it's the tall Hyatt. And it's got a Mexican restaurant in it. I know that's important to you as much as it is to me. Um, But Hyatt, Regency, Creek Heights. Now, here you go. Okay. Think of it this way. Goliath. Okay, we got Goliath in our story today. He was really, really tall. He had great height. So next week we will be at Hyatt, Regency, Dubai Creek Heights. Now, my kids laughed at me when I said that. And they told me that's really a cheesy dad joke. Um, I know it is, but here's the thing. You're going to remember it now, aren't you? You will not forget Hyatt, Regency, Creek Heights, 9 or 11. You'll thank me for that later. I also want to remind the ladies that directly after our time today, you'll see Women in the Word, our next monthly women's Bible study. Um, It's on Abraham and the covenant God made with him and Israel. We'll do that at 1. If you want help finding the location, there's going to be a group of ladies leaving from the connections table after this service. You could go there. You could get a map from there if you're driving. It's about a five-minute walk. If you haven't joined the ladies yet, this is a great time. You can jump in today. And finally, one last thing. Our next membership class is Friday afternoon, February 21st. So if you're new to us or maybe you've been with us for a while but haven't taken the step to commit membership class, 
February 21st, 1 p.m. Just make a note in your diaries or calendars for that. Well, let's pray as we approach God's word. Oh, Father, we thank you. Thank you that we can meet here openly. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear of your love as seen in the scriptures today. Encourage weary hearts and lead us to repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So David and Goliath. Around 20 years of ministry for me, and this is the very first time I've ever preached or taught this story. Now raise your hand if you've heard of David and Goliath before. You know, raise them, raise them up high. Okay, lots of you. Whether you're a believer or not, you've probably heard about Noah and his ark, Jonah and the whale, David and Goliath. These are some of the most famous Bible stories, even stories that pop culture knows and writes about. Maybe you've heard sermons or you've read children's books that depict the story. Questions may have been asked like, who are the giants in your life? Have you slain all your Goliaths? What do you do when you're an underdog against a stronger opponent? How do you stand up to bullies? We've been told we all have Goliaths in our lives, and all you need is a a few smooth stones to defeat them. Five in particular. Well, what are these five stones? Has anyone explained this to you before? Of course, it's prayer and church attendance, Bible reading. It's really generous financial giving to the church. And most of all, it's loving your senior pastor with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Those are the five stones. Well, some things is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But I don't think so. That's not right. It has to be, as some have said, the five points of Calvinism. That's got to be it. Five stones, five points. Well, facing your giants with a few stones, that's the way we sometimes hear this passage preached. But Redeemer Church, we know better than this, don't we? Truth be told, this passage has little to do with combat martial arts advice. It's not about fighting your bullies. The story is actually not about David and Goliath. It's not even about you and me. The main character in 1 Samuel 17 is not Saul. It's not Goliath. It's not even David. The main character in 1 Samuel 17 is God. It's Yahweh. We need to read the story from that perspective. It's about a God who delivers his people. That's perhaps not a story in the Bible, more misunderstood. And so this morning, let's get it right. Let's get to the heart of this story. If you have a Bible, we're looking at 1 Samuel 17. You'll find it towards the beginning of the Old Testament. It's in a section of historical narrative. We've been walking through this book over the last several months. And today we'll look through the entirety of chapter 17. You'll find it in your bulletins. If you need to look there, you'll want to follow along. It's a lot of text, and we'll be, we'll be walking through it. And we'll see, as we look, three main scenes in the text, kind of three movements, three, three scenes. There's a few minor scenes, but three big ones. First, we'll see God's enemy. See God's enemy in verses 1 through 11. Second, we'll see God's friend, 
verses 12 through 49. And third, God's victory, verses 50 through 58. So if you're taking notes, God's enemy, God's friend, God's victory. Well, the first scene, God's enemy, verses 1 through 11. The Philistines, they're gathered for battle. They're encamped on one mountain in Sokol, which is in Judah. This means the Philistines are starting to encroach on Israelite territory. Israel, they're gathered on the other mountain. And in between them, you have the Valley of Elah. The valley in the middle was a no man's land. It was empty, ready for a possible battle to take place. That valley ran east to west. Philistines, they were a coastal people, as a sea people. They would use the valley to go inland. And in this case, they were wanting to leave Ekron and Gath, their coastal cities. They were wanting to make some headway inland to try to take over more Israelite territory. Philistines, they assembled a great military led by their mighty warrior, Goliath. Goliath was mighty in appearance. He's the only person in the Old Testament called a champion. Six cubits, a span tall, that would have been over three meters tall, well over nine feet tall. It was, if he was a basketball player, he could dunk the ball with his head. He was that tall. Not only was he tall, but he was strong. Verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze and a coat of mail. Now, mail is not something you put into a, a post office box to get somewhere. This was a metal fabric that was flexible because it was linked together. He was covered in it, and so a sword could not pierce into his body. His coat weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's a 50-kilogram jacket. Bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze between his shoulders. And verse 7, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. A weaver's beam was the strong beam at the top or at the bottom of a loom where a cloth would have been woven. It says his spear's head was 600 shekels of iron. That's seven kilograms. I can't even imagine trying to take a spear or a sword and to fight with a seven-kilogram head. The narrator's point in going detail by detail through his armor is to show us that this is the greatest warrior that the world has ever seen. That's the point. Goliath was mighty in appearance, but he was also mighty in his mocking. Israel, why have you come down here to battle? You have no chance. But since you're here, let me make you a little deal. Israel, if you win, we the Philistines will be your servants. But if we win, you Israel have to be our servants. He's teasing, provoking, harassing, and the heart of it's in verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's trash-talking the God of Israel. Goliath's appearance and mocking had a mighty effect on God's people. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Israel's disheartened. Now, what should have happened here? Who should have gone to fight? Well, the king of Israel. Saul should have said, well, man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I'm going to look at the heart. I'm going to fight this giant. This is what kings do. But what's Saul up to? Well, Saul and the rest of Israel, they were staring at Goliath's physical stature and his appearance. 
And for 40 days, they're listening to Goliath's taunts, afraid, Saul's scared, he won't risk his life, he won't risk his life for the sake of his people. Now remember, God had promised to deliver Israel by faith. And do you notice, though, there's no mention of them pursuing God in these verses. All seems hopeless until we see a friend of God come to the rescue. We'll see that in the second scene. It's a, it's a longer one. We see God's friend. It's a bigger portion of Scripture, verses 12 through 47. God's friend. God has a man and a plan. Verse 12. David takes stage in the scene. He takes center stage, one of eight sons of Jesse. The three older sons, they were at the battlefield ready if there was to be fighting. But David's job, David was still back with the sheep, with dad, but he would be going back and forth from his father's sheep to taking food to his brothers in battle. The way war worked in those days, you as a family had to support your family who were at war. And so David went back and forth, back and forth from home to the battlefield. He brought them grains and bread. Now, are his brothers even fighting? Well, no, they're scared. Remember, they're sitting back. All of Israel are sitting back. But it's David's job again just to keep them fed as they, I guess, sit there and watch Goliath taunt them for these 40 days. And verse 18 says, David also took 10 cheeses to the commander. I find this just a bit funny. David is basically a cheese delivery boy. Do you notice that? 10 cheeses, I don't even think I can name 10 cheeses. Cheddar, pepper jack, you know, you have Gouda and Swiss. But here there's 10 cheeses. David's bringing 10 cheese delicacies to the commander. Goliath's taunting Israel, and they're sitting around eating cheese. But what seems like a mundane delivery to his brothers is actually a divine delivery of another kind. See, God was using the feeding of his family to deliver a true warrior. All along behind the scenes, God was sovereignly working to bring a man who would fight. Now, normally David wouldn't be at the battlefield. The military age was 20. David was too young. His three older brothers are there. But God had other ideas. Redeemer Church, don't underestimate what God is doing in your life in this very moment. It could be in the mundane tasks that God has for you today that he's doing something great in and through you or bringing you to something great. There are no wasted moments. I mean, think about it. David carrying a basket of cheese and bread from his sheep herding duties to the battlefield. I wonder what was going through David's mind as he fed the commander cheese. I wonder what went through his mind that morning when he woke up as to what that day would have for him. And we never know what challenges or opportunities await us as we roll out of bed. Friend, no matter where God has you, be faithful to the task at hand. Pray fervently. Lord, use me today. I don't know what you have in store for me today, but use me. I'm ready to serve you. So Romans Chapter 12, verse 11, kind of ready. Do not be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is David. He was fervent in spirit. He was always at the ready to serve the Lord. And he rose. Verse 20. 
He rose early, and he delivered the food. Again, in God's providence, he delivered the food to his brothers and to the commander at the precise time that Goliath was going out for his daily taunt. Israel drew up for battle on one side. The Philistines drew up for battle. On the other side, David runs up to his brothers. Hey, guys, brothers, what's happening out here? Verse 23, there's Goliath. Verse 24, before David could blink, everyone's fled. But David stays, and in verse 26, we get his first words in the Bible. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, this is interesting. What's David's first impression of this three-meter-tall man covered in bronze armor? He's not scared. He sees him for what he is, an uncircumcised Philistine, an enemy of God. Well, why? Well, he's not looking at his outward appearance. He cares about the honor of God. He says, who is he that he should defy the armies of the living God? I love David's bold response. Who is this man? Who does he think he is? Well, but notice in his faithfulness, David begins to face opposition. Well before we ever get to Goliath, there are a couple of other battles David has to face. The first is with his own family. Verse 28, his oldest brother Eliab was angry with David. What are you doing down here, little guy? Who's with the sheep? Who's doing your job? I know your heart. David, you're just coming here to try to get a front row seat to the fight. Well, David responds, verse 29, what have I done? I've just said some words. You know, it's interesting that Eliab isn't angry at Goliath for his pride and presumption, but he's angry at his little brother. You're a prideful boy. It's backwards, isn't it? Well, verse 30, David speaks the same way again to another same answer. Sometimes even your biological family or church family will be in opposition to your faithfulness. There's something especially discouraging when brothers and sisters are opposed to each other. Brothers are supposed to fight for brothers and sisters for sisters and for one another. They're supposed to support each other. There's something especially sweet when you see siblings fight and protect each other or to cheer each other on and to celebrate one another. Last weekend, the school football team that my daughter Eliza and another one of our youth, Annie, play for, they, they won the championship. They scored a game-winning goal in extra time. And when the whistle blew, them being conference champions, as the whistle blew, everybody charged onto the field. And my younger daughter, Nora, ran onto the field right next to the coach. And throughout the whole match, Annie's sisters were sitting there cheering on and yelling for their sister to do well. I mean, something beautiful when siblings love and support one another, when they cheer each other on and they cheer on each other's successes. This is what we were made to do. That's why it's so disheartening and backwards when we have one sibling hurting another sibling. Here, before David ever gets to Goliath, what happens? He's got his brother Eliath, an older brother who's supposed to protect David. 
supposed to fight for David, supposed to encourage David, supposed to support David, supposed to cheer him on, supposed to rush onto the field to support him. He should have been in awe of his brother's faith, should have been proud of him. Instead, what was his heart? Was it jealousy? Was it pride? Did he know deep down he should have been the one to go to battle? But here's his little brother. Well, not only is this a challenge in our homes, it's also a challenge in our church family. How horrible it is when brothers and sisters in Christ look down upon one another in pride or because of ethnicity or are jealous of one's ministry opportunities. On the other hand, the truth of Psalm 133 is true. How wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. There's something specially beautiful when we stand beside one another in faith. Well, here Eliab gives David a metaphorical slap to the face. David's first battle was with his brother. Eliab is no better than Goliath. You see that Goliath will mock David, but beforehand Eliab has already started the mockery. One scholar has said David actually has to fight three Goliaths in this chapter. Eliab and later Goliath, but then after Eliab, he's got to fight Saul, or at least fight against Saul's initial response. David wants to sign him up for battle, sign himself up to go. Verse 33, Saul says, you're just a boy. You're a youth. You can't do this. Look at Goliath. This is a man of war. A boy can't fight a giant. Now, we don't know if Saul recognized David as the harpist from the chapter before, but either way, a boy can't fight a warrior. Eliab says, David, you're too prideful. Saul says, David, you're too weak and you're too young. Well, David could have won a debate tournament with his response, verses 34 through 37. Sure, I've kept my father's sheep, but let me, let me tell you something, King Saul. There were times when lions and bears came to devour my daddy's sheep. And you know what I did? I fought him. I, I beat him up. I punched him. I grabbed them by the hair and I killed those animals and saved the sheep. I killed those bears and lions and I'm going to do the same thing to that Philistine warrior. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever gotten into a wrestling match with a lion or a bear before. Now, if you have, please come and tell me afterwards. I'd love to hear about it. Left to give you a big hug. That's pretty amazing. But most of us can't relate to David's experience. But notice the opposing questions that are asked in these verses. Saul and David both ask a question. Saul says, who are you, David, to fight this Philistine? David asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, David understands something. He understands that his God can take on anyone, that this giant is no match for the living God. Well, the people of God should never be paralyzed in the face of evil. We just sang this in Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A bulwark never failing. A bulwark, it's a big wall, a big defensive wall, a wall you can't penetrate to, a wall that protects, a, a mighty fortress. That's who our God is. He's got it in control. 
Nothing can get through. God is our protector, our defense. David understood this while everyone else around him wasn't so sure. In fact, they were sure God couldn't do this and they ran. Instead, David wasn't looking at outward appearance, but David was looking at the heart and he was a man after God's own heart. David says, by faith, knowing God could protect him in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David isn't saying, look at how amazing I am. It was my karate, kung fu, jujitsu skills that beat those lions and bears. It was God. And it's God who can give me victory even now. Well, Saul says to David, he must have been convinced. He says, okay, (laughs) go and the Lord be with you. I wonder what Saul was thinking. He's the king. This is when kings go to war, but he's too afraid to go and instead is about to send this perhaps preteen boy. Instead of doing what he's to do, he stays in fear. Now, you and I can certainly relate. Our fears are on display everywhere. Maybe there's some task we know we should do, but we just won't do it. Maybe it's something as big as facing Goliath. Or maybe it's just everyday challenges. You know, we may be afraid to discipline our children because we want them to like us. And so we struggle with saying no because we don't want to upset them. Maybe we overwork because we're afraid of not being successful in the world's eyes. We may be afraid to be generous in our financial giving or helping the poor because we're afraid of the future and instead we want to stockpile assets. We could be scared to share our faith with our coworker or our friend. We know we should. We've been building this relationship. We know we, we should tell them more about Jesus and ask them to repent and believe, but we're just afraid. We're afraid it's going to change the friendship. Maybe we're afraid we're going to get mocked. We're just, we're just afraid, and so we, we live in those fears. Could be nervous about certain kids at school. Maybe you're a teen or a tween in here, and there's gossip going on. There's mocking. There's a bully picking on someone else. You know that you should stand up for what's right. You stand back in fear. Well, friend, this worry about what other people think of you consume you. Well, at its heart, fear is self-absorption. It's thinking about ourselves too much and not looking to God. Well, David had every right to be afraid if he was thinking about himself. David had every right to be afraid if he was looking to himself David wasn't strong. Verses 38 through 44, we see his comparative weakness. He's got nothing. Saul tries to dress him up a bit. He thinks, well, if I, if I make him look like a warrior, if he's got the armor of a warrior, then maybe, just maybe, he might last a few seconds in the ring with Goliath. David gets the armor on, but he can hardly walk. It's too big. It's too heavy. David's too weak to even wear the battle armor into the fight. Instead, he grabs a sling and five stones. Now, why five? Well, here's the secret. Here's the answer you've been waiting for. I have no idea. I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. I don't know. Was he taking some backups? Right? Like one slingshot. Oh, I missed. I have four more. Was he preparing to kill Goliath's brothers afterwards? Was it the five points of Calvinism? It's definitely not that. But we don't know. Why five? 
the point, he didn't have a lot. He went by faith. He gets his weapon together. And in verse 41, Goliath sees David. And to put it bluntly, Goliath is not really impressed, is he? Verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He curses David. Come to me. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David, I'm going to feed you to the birds. Well, Goliath's taunts lead everyone else to retreat. All of Israel has fled. David stays. And he gives us one of the most beautiful little speeches in all of the Bible. Verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David gets it. David gets it. The living God is on his side. The one over the angelic armies and over all things. You come with a taunt, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And look at David's confidence. <laughs> I'm going to cut off your head. <laughs> I mean, that's a bold brother right there. A, a preteen, a, a, a child talking to this giant. And the public doesn't even know David's been anointed king yet. I said his brothers and family probably knew, but we don't even know that. It's likely it wasn't totally clear yet, and they didn't fully understand the ramifications of what Samuel had done. And yet David, the young shepherd boy, goes to battle without armor, but with faith against the champion. And he brings victory for Israel. That's the third scene we see. We've seen God's enemy. We've seen God's friend. Third and finally, we see God's victory in verses 48 through 58. Verse 48, Goliath comes to battle. And I love this. Do you notice this as you were studying in your community groups this past week? David didn't just kind of nervously walk to the battle line. Did you see that he ran quickly to the battle line to meet Goliath. And in, in verse 49, David put his hand in the bag. He took out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell to the ground. And just like that, really, for seconds of the match, Yahweh is victorious. Now, those stones would have been about five centimeters wide. An experienced sling shooter could probably shoot them about 200 kilometers per hour, and David got Goliath right there in the middle of the forehead. And in verse 50, not having a sword himself, goes to Goliath, takes Goliath's sword, and he does to Goliath what he told him he would do. He cuts off his head. And what happens? Well, the Philistines, they don't keep their end of the bargain, do they? They're not becoming servants of Israel. Instead, they run like the wind Israel's recharged. They chase the Philistines. They plunder their camp. And just like the corn god 
Dagon lost his head. Now Goliath, the Philistine champion, loses his. Now, idols and false gods will always fail you. And when when we, we follow after them, eventually they'll prove their nothingness. The emptiness of your heart will be revealed. Well, Bible scholar G.K. Beale has often said, you are what you worship. That what you revere, what you worship, what you adore, you become like. The Philistines in worshiping Dagon and in following Goliath have now become like what they worship. Weak, nothing, powerless, hopeless. It never really did fill their hearts. It was empty and they run now because they have nothing. They're weak because they followed after false gods. And when we turn to the world for security and significance, we become like the world, empty on this never-ending search for something that we will never find apart from God. The Philistines are stunned here. They run. They never thought this would happen. Their world had fallen apart. Verse 55, Saul is stunned as well. He asks Abner, the commander, who is this boy? Whose son is he? I don't know. It's not that Saul has forgotten who David is from the beginning of the battle until now. Even if Saul remembered David from back in his music playing days, he probably wouldn't have remembered his father's name. What he's asking for here is more about David's background, David's social status, David's family. Abner finds David and, and David still holding Goliath's head, is taken in to see King Saul. David tells him, I'm Jesse's son. The king, what was going through his mind as he saw this young boy, victorious with the giant's head and arm? David tells him, I'm Jesse's son. That's how the passage ends. I would, I would pay a lot of money if I could go back in time and be a fly on the wall and hear that conversation between King Saul and David. Wouldn't you want to know what was talked about between them? What did Saul say to David? What did David say to Saul? But the narrative just ends with the words, I, David's words, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's interesting that before Abner finds David, you look back a bit, a few words, David takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Well, it's fascinating because at this point, the Israelites didn't rule Jerusalem. It wasn't the temple city yet. It doesn't become Israel's until David captured it from the Jebusites in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So why did he go? Well, we don't know exactly But it does remind us that it was in the same city a thousand years later that the greater David would go and fight his biggest battle. He won't just defeat Goliath, but Satan and all of Israel's enemies. Well, friend, in our story today, it's not simply about courage. It's not that David had courage and Goliath didn't. It's not merely about the fact that David had courage, but the rest of the Israelites didn't. In the case of Goliath, Goliath's a champion too. He's got courage. He's got boldness. But Goliath goes into battle trusting in his physical stature and strength. He's tall. He's strong. He's got perfect, perfect armor. 
Now, there are two opposing ways of having courage and dealing with fear. Goliath dealt with any fear he had by looking at how great he was. Well, David, he doesn't have much. A staff, a sling, a few stones. His courage came from belief in an all-powerful God. In case you're wondering, as we come to the end here, we're not David in this story. Maybe you've read children's books or, or heard people teach that, yeah, we're, we're just like David, conquering our Goliaths. But that's not the in- t- intention here. We're not David in this story. The message isn't be like David and you can conquer all the Goliaths in your life. Just have enough faith and you'll win. Just have enough faith and you'll prosper. That's not what the story is telling us here. Because friends, we can never do enough to defeat the greatest enemy of sin and death. Now, we're not David. Who are we in this story? Well, we're like all the cowards of Israel who for 40 days heard the taunts of Goliath and ran away. That's who we are. We're the ones who stood on the sidelines and never ran into the field. We're the ones who watched walked away in fear. That's who we are. And if no one comes in to save us, we are doomed to death. Like those scared Israelites, we needed a savior to save us. We needed the greater David. We needed the shepherd king who would come fight for his people. And just like in this story here, when it looked like total defeat in the valley of Elah, God was bringing victory through this Bethlehemite. Well, a thousand years later, we see another one from Bethlehem. Another one would come and he would go to the hill of Calvary. It looked like complete defeat again. Jesus hung there on the cross in utter humiliation. But all along, behind the scenes, in his sovereignty, God was bringing about victory. But not in spite of weakness, but through weakness. And when all looked lost, and for good this time, because Jesus actually died. He actually died and he was actually placed in a tomb with a massive stone rolled in front of it. When all looked lost and surely defeat was at hand, God was moving behind the scenes. And we know that there on that third day, Jesus burst out of that grave in victory, complete victory. Well, David went down into the valley of Elah to fight, but Jesus went into the ultimate valley of death for us. Well, David takes off Goliath's head. Genesis 3 prefigured that we'd have a Savior who would do the same, that he might get struck on the heel, but that he would give a deadly wound to our enemy Satan's head. And that happened on the cross. Redeemer Church, this passage is not about facing your giants. It's not about five stones. It's about a God who takes our place. It's about a God who stands in for us. It's about a a God who didn't merely come down a mountain into a valley to fight, but it's a God who left his throne in heaven and came to earth to fight for us. Redeemer Church, God has come to us. Let us fix our eyes on the true champion. Let's pray. Well, Father, give us faith to follow you. Would we get confidence not in our own abilities or to give in fear 
to our inabilities, but would we look to you, our author and perfecter of our faith? Would like David, would we give you glory in all things? That any victories, any triumphs, any spiritual fruit is not our doing, but it's Christ's doing in and through us. And so would we look to you each day for all things? Would we not look to ourselves, but would we look to Jesus by faith? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.